So you have a tendency and your love overlanding. You have plans to do it big on the trace and some super glamping. One idea, steep news and reviews, a podcast the first rate and here just for you. You don't have to think about it. Join us and be about it. Something interesting we want to hear about it. Come on, let's talk about it. Welcome to Waypoint Overlands Random Waypoints Podcast. Sponsored by Midland. Communication for every adventure. The industry leader in radio communication technology and innovation for over 50 years. Sponsored by MyMedic. Sponsored by Tembo Tusk. Sponsored by Shower Pouch. Sponsored by DeMoss Collective. Mission built and made for mobility. Sponsored by Brute Trek. Always remember, the opinion you follow should be your own. Just consider the things stated here to be a second opinion from a complete stranger online. I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and raised on the south shore of Massachusetts in Hanson, Mass., the beautiful home of ocean spray cranberries. And spent my childhood and adult years there until I went off to school in the University of New Hampshire up in Plymouth. I was born and raised in uh, Connecticut, northern Connecticut. I grew up in that area, sort of out in farm country, and uh, mostly lived in New England uh, for the first, I don't know, 25 years. I went to uh, college in New Hampshire and uh, lived up in uh, New Hampshire and Vermont. I would say I got into cycling early on, mostly because I, I lived in a small kind of farm town, and we used to ride to our friends that were on the other side of town. So it kind of started with commuting back and forth, maybe, you know, seven to 10 miles. And uh, that's kind of how I got into cycling, I would say, in my teenage years. Probably not all that dissimilar. Small country town, a small farm town. Um, you had to ride a bike to get to your neighbor's house. And then, of course, you needed to have a paper route to make a couple bucks. So I started with a paper route that you'd have the big canvas bag and you'd go out and deliver papers. And then got intrigued. And the next thing I know, I, I picked up a unicycle and started to learn how to ride a unicycle. Um, and then the kind of try cascaded and the next thing I knew I was fixing bicycles for my neighbors and people who saw a little repair sign out front and so I was cycling way back when um, you know it was six eight ten this is fascinating maybe we should do this on unicycles <laughs> we could do it on I unicycles like there's a guy who cycled around the world on a unicycle yeah. next year yeah next year and then when I got to college, a couple of kids I went to school with decided, uh, just kind of like like the, an adventure in forming, we said, what are we going to do after school? And uh, one of them suggested we ride across the country. So sure enough, we rode from um, Rockport, Massachusetts, out to Walla Walla, Washington, and then from Walla Walla, Washington, down to San Francisco um, upon graduating college. I'm retired full life of working, did plenty of long days, travel, and uh, had an opportunity to hire, retire in 2013 when my mom was a little sick, so got to spend time with her, and uh, I don't regret a day, don't look back at all of losing, uh, leaving the work life. I am retired as well and travel full time on the road now. I uh, was in the uh, restaurant business and the real estate business, and I still own a real estate company uh, back in my former home of Connecticut. But uh, yeah, I, unlike Eric, I don't regret a day of that either. Um, I, I, my only regret, I would say, was uh, I wish I had done it a little bit sooner. Um, loving it, uh, not not having to, pretty much thinking that every day is Saturday. So my answer to what this trip has to do with overlanding is very simple. Uh, and you guys have heard me talk about this a zillion times over. It doesn't matter whether it's four wheels or two wheels or uh, body-powered pedaling or a motorcycle or a 4x4 truck. 
it's overlanding if you're under your own sort of under your own power under your own uh well how would you say it like you know you're you're out doing your thing you're self-supporting your, yeah. yourself on the road yeah we're out finding our own way camping where we want to camp whether we camp from a bicycle or camp from a big rig we're out living in the land, the, the beautiful land, um, and finding the best spot with the most, the greatest vistas and the time for us to see the scenery and relax and most importantly, meet the people. And, and in many ways, you're gonna have the opportunity to see and meet people far greater at six miles per hour. <laughs> We're about to embark on the Baja Divide, which is a navigated route, a route that's been pre-planned, going from San Diego, California, down basically to Cabo San Lucas and doing a loop down at the southern tip of Baja Sur. The route was crafted by a couple guys, I think, five, six years ago? Yeah, maybe maybe a little few more years ago than that, but... Uh, I think it was a I, was a husband wife or something. Yes, yep. And um, and they've put together a, a detailed map highlighting waypoints on where we can get fuel and water, and highlighting stretches of giving us insight into the terrain, whether it's hilly or sandy, or uh, needs a, a beach, a, a boat portage across a bay, uh, and uh, it's done. I'm not sure by how many. Um, but if we're not the first, although we are the first that we've seen on video that we'll be doing it on fat bikes. Um, most of the people do it on gravel or mountain bikes and with varying successes. Uh, the route crisscrosses the mountainous region of Baja and Mike and I are guessing that it's going to be sometime somewhere between five to six crosses of the mountain range. The, is it the Sierra? Yeah, I mean, it's the bottom part of the, well, it's the Rocky Mountains that go down, sort of, and it splits off the Sierra Nevada, yeah. Um, it's, it's 100, and I think it's about 115,000 feet of climbing over 1,700 miles, so that's better than a two-to-one ratio. It's, it's, a lot of people, I think, it, think that you're riding through the desert, mm-hmm. and in many ways, we are riding through the desert, but it's, it's very mountainous in Baja. Hey, and the mountains are going to bring us into um, valleys that, are, although it will be desert for the most part, there are oases with palm trees and running streams and springs. So uh, I think we're going to be fascinated by the scenery and the landscape, and um, I, I can't wait. Yeah, I mean, the summary on the route is that it is a established route. It's probably not used a ton. I know I could tell you that I was parked down there uh, last winter, uh, pretty much on the route, so I did see bike packers coming by. Uh, and, but you know, to say like a lot of them would be a, would be a stretch. I think that you know maybe I'd see uh, one or two come through every couple weeks, and um, you know, fully loaded. Uh, you know, you'd watch them ride by my truck. They're full, fully loaded, moving at the speed of backwards, and uh, you know, interesting. You know, because interesting to see these people because they're on the road long term. And many of them, by the way, do the Baja Divide and then continue on and go down uh, the Pan-American and continue on through Central America and South America, too. So it's not just doing the Baja Divide. And then on the northern part, um, they're working on kind of connecting the Baja Divide with uh, the Great Divide that goes through um, the Rocky Mountains in the United States and then goes up uh, to Canada. And as Mike was saying, the terrain is so varied. Uh, the reason we've chosen fat bikes is that in a lo- large part of the ride is going to be through deep sand, um, for soft deep sand. And we really felt four-inch tires were a necessity to being able to ride versus push. I think we're still going to be pushing a bike quite a bit, but uh, we hope that our ratio of, of, of actually pedaling will be a little higher than the people who've chosen skinny tire bikes. Yeah, it was my experience from being down there is it's just so sandy and, and I, I would say I might have done or have seen maybe a third of this route um, out exploring primarily on my motorcycle so I, I'm familiar with a lot of the different conditions in the places and the big challenges are obviously going to be soft sand, beach sand and um, sections that are very rocky so uh, I would agree with Eric. There's probably a fair amount of sections, even with uh, wider tires, that you're going to do a hike-a-bike scenario. So this could be a, it could be a lot of hiking involved, uh, pushing a 100-pound bike. 
The, bi- <laughs> the, the bikes we're going to be using, as we mentioned, are fat tire bikes. They're Surly Wednesdays as the model. Um, Mike has done a lot of research on it. Um, it was, uh, to be honest, I was a little disappointed we were going to have to get fat, to pirate, fat tire bikes because I had uh, a whole fleet of other bicycles, including mountain bikes, and I was hopeful that we could have used one of those. Uh, however, quickly after researching it it was obvious it was going to be really challenging almost impossible to do it on a skinny tire bike so after mike did all his researches he suggested to me that we go visit a bike shop down outside of boston and and look and look for bicycles and then uh mike and i drove down and what happened mike well we drove down there and in fairness like eric said we both have a number of other bicycles, and we kind of hope to use other things. Uh, and our background is more in gravel and road riding. So uh, having neither one of us ever o- really owning a fat bike, we went down to this uh, bike shop in Boston, and you know, I don't know, it turns into looking at bikes to purchasing bikes. And then, of course, that translates into, you know, now you got the bike, and now you need the gear and the bags and the racks and the it's never ending really and just like in the overlanding world um equipment's key and you don't want equipment to fail when you're out in the middle of nowhere so and mike takes his equipment real serious so we did not just purchase bikes we did multiple upgrades to make sure that we had the best drive trains the best um brake system um and really went through these fat bikes um and upgraded them to a standard that we felt would be capable um, of doing the Baja Divide. And the downside of them is that initially when we started looking, common sense will tell you, let's go find the lightest bikes we can find, uh, because weight is always going to be the enemy, right? So we were looking at, you know, carbon fiber, fat bikes. I even found one that I think it was 18 pounds, and then we looked at titanium. We looked at all the stuff, and then at the end of the day, we realized in reading and watching a ton of YouTube that the, the, the structure of the bike is actually more important. It's A, it's got to be able to carry a ton of weight, uh, and B, it's got to be pretty rugged to go over these conditions. And thirdly, it needs to have what they call brazons, which are little attachment points on the bike so you can mount all this gear. Well, the carbon fiber bikes really can't support the weight. They don't have the brazons. And, uh, and the titanium bikes are few and far between. They were a really tough time finding them. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up with these Surleys. Uh, called Wednesday, because I guess any day is a good day to ride a bike. <laughs> and uh, they have lots of brazons and lots of attachment points. But the downside is ba- you know, stock, this bike weighs like 36 pounds with nothing on it, which is heavy. Yep. Then we add some racks, and quickly we're up in 50 pounds. Then we start to fill the, the panniers, and before we knew it, we were north of 100 pounds. How did this happen? It's a great question, and one that makes us reflect on kind of where we've been, but more importantly, where we're going. And where we're going is hopefully to finish out, to continue to do adventures. And adventures, as Mike said, can take a lot of different shapes and sizes. This adventure spawned because, as you know, Michael spends the winters down in Baja, and cycling and backpacking seem to be real intriguing. And there's a few designated routes throughout the world, but getting to them um, in the time of year they require just didn't fit into my schedule, nor his schedule. When we discovered the Baja Divide, to me it was a no-brainer. That's the adventure we had to do. Cycling during the winter season, down the 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 Baja uh, Peninsula to where Michael's going to be anyways. So I did a a little bit of research, very little, and tossed the question over to Mike saying, how about it? Let's let's ride the Baja Divide, knowing that neither of us has has done any bike backpacking, um, but knowing that we do know how to ride bikes, so I figured we were capable and ready. And I promptly said... Yeah, no, I don't think so. That just sounds like a terrible idea. And I was sitting in Baja at the time, enjoying my beautiful view of the ocean, and 
And he had emailed me, and I looked through the, you know, I think he sent me a video that's probably online and, and some uh, details. And I kind of, you know, figured that he, you know, eventually forget about the idea. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, many months later, after returning back to the, to the States and coming back here east, uh, and then we ride during the summer months, uh, and then, you know, we get back here, and he says, so, you know, what do you think about the Bob Divide? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I'm, I'm, I don't know how it turned from that into us going to buy bikes, but see, when it, it's kind of like a snowball. I think once we bought the bikes, now it's like, well, we got to do it. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, now, now, now that we've told, you know, several hundred thousand people that we're doing it, um, I guess we have to. But um, that's kind of where it originated. It was... It was really more of an avalanche than a snowball. Yeah. It was... <laughs> yeah. we, once that thing picked up speed, there was no stopping it. And, I uh, mean, from my perspective, uh, the COVID uh, situation and, the, and my travels around the world were delayed. And that kind of kept me um, in North America and, and kind of stationary rotating between Mexico in the winter and back in the States in the summer. So I felt like the, the situation hadn't improved enough to continue on down the Pan American Highway. So this kind of delays it another year um, and it gives me the opportunity to try a new adventure, I guess, you know. So, you know, sometimes it's the motorcycle, sometimes it's the truck, and now it's going to be a fat bike. And, I, and I'd be remiss not to point out that Linda, my wife, kind of was hopeful that the idea would lose steam and it would never occur. But much to her surprise, uh, uh, it picked up steam. It didn't lose steam. And proud owners of Surly Wednesdays and all the paraphernalia that goes with them, come January, we're pedaling. So to outline the Baja Divide, the conditions on the route, um, people don't realize that it's actually pretty varied. So uh, over its 1,700 mile course from San Diego down to the tip of um, the, the southern tip of Baja, you go through varying degrees of elevation, which changes um, you know, the scenery and it changes what the conditions on the road surface. So let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, uh, 95, 96% of this route is off pavement, for, first off. And then the second portion of this is much of it is off uh, what I would call improved gravel uh, roads because most of Baja, there's only got really two paved roads in, in all of the Baja Peninsula, the two states. Um, most of the side roads are all dirt roads. Um, and much of this route is not even on dirt roads. It's off on, some of it is where they run the Baja 1000, uh, the race. And some of it is just single track, backpack, you know, just, just track or old abandoned roads that aren't there anymore. So it varies. The terrain is extremely rugged. There's a lot of steep climbs. There's a lot of heavy sand. There are, as one section, I think it's almost three days of riding along what I would consider to be the beach. There is um, a section uh, that is that we actually have to take uh, find a, uh, a fisherman to take you across the, to a peninsula where there really is no access whatsoever from vehicle standpoint. Um, and then we have to ride along that, which I think is probably a two-day ride to get yeah. out of the peninsula. And, and accordingly, has no services. So we have to carry all of our food and water for those two to four day stretches based yeah. on how quickly we ride and how long it is before we get to the next, the next, rest, the next area to, to resupply. Um, and the, the temperatures at the beginning when we yeah. start... So this is January, and January, one of the advantages about Baja and people, and the reason that people, a lot of overlanders go down to Baja in the winter is that it's pretty consistent weather. Uh, but most of the people go down uh, as far south as you can go, which is south of the Trap of Cancer, actually. So it's, it's about on par with, um, you know, uh, Cuba. Havana, Cuba is about the same latitude. But north of that, obviously, starting in San Diego, it can be quite cool and cold even at nighttime. Baja is fairly arid, but it's not gonna be unheard of to potentially have rain, and some people that have been doing the Baja Divide have even reported snow, yep. so uh, at higher elevations. So the, the conditions can be pretty bad. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed, 
that we don't see too much of wet because the, the, the rain is really difficult there. Even uh, just recently, within the last couple of weeks, uh, Baja is susceptible to hurricanes in uh, August and September, and they had a storm go through this season, and that oftentimes wipes out roads, even, even established roads, but it certainly causes wipeouts and washouts that aren't fixed for years, if ever. And the rain quickly turns into our worst nightmare, which is mud. Yeah. And the mud that um, can, can mire a big, huge rig like this will just devastate our fat bikes because it clogs up the brakes, the wheels stop turning, they stop shifting, and the brakes stop working. So uh, mud will be a, a delay in our whole process. I don't know how long we'll have to wait, but we won't be able to ride through mud. Not if it's wet. And the other thing, a factor that is um, unrideable, the prevailing wind in Baja is generally north uh, to south. It blows down the peninsula, comes down the Sierra Cortez. If, and you know, I can tell you from last winter's experience, it shifted a few times, very rare. It's very rare to have the wind blowing out of the south. But if it does, uh, it's almost unrideable because we might as well be riding, you know, hot air balloons. Yeah. Um, they're they're yeah. so heavy and so wind resistant mm -hmm. that, um, you know, an average wind speed, I think, in most of the peninsula is like 14 to 20 miles an hour on a, da on a daily basis. So you can get winds not unheard of. I saw them at 30, 40, 50 miles an hour blowing. Uh, pretty common. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a very windy climate. So. If they're, uh, you know, hopefully we're hoping the wind, we got a tailwind the whole way, yeah. <laughs> but we'll see what happens with that. Once we are pedaling, and we've already talked about what it's going to take to get up the hills and down the hills and over the rocks and through the sand, but we're going to do it. It may be challenging, we're going to do it. We're going to be stopping at any restaurants that we see, and we're going to be delightful on whatever they sell, and we're going to love whatever they sell, but there are going to be times that we're going to be cooking on our own, so we have, we're going to be carrying stoves, um, food that will be for emergency portion, uh, emergency rations, food that we pick up at tiendas and, and stores and markets. Um, and I'm sure that our, our diet will be quick to prepare foods such as ramen noodles and other fast cutting serving. I mean, the, the problem is that the resupply points are Probably on average, what would you say, every three to five days? Yes. Uh, and, and when I say resupply points, you're crossing potentially the Trans Peninsular Highway, Route 1, going down, weaves back and forth, and you'll have to ride, you know, slightly off course to get to a little village. But these are not, this is not, these are not grocery stores. These are, you know, usually small tienda kind of places. We'll be eating a lot of, a lot of tortillas and beans in a bag. Uh, um, you know, hopefully, uh, like Eric said, if, if we're in town and there's an opportunity to, to find a restaurant or something, that'll be a, a priority for sure. And certainly, uh, you know, sleeping arrangements, um, if you're in a town that has, you know, some kind of shelter or hotel or something of the sort, then we'll elect for that. But primarily, it's tents, jet boil. And I'm going to have a jet and, boil for cooking. Inflatable really mattresses. Water, right? Yep. Inflatable mattresses that are suspect to puncture because of the abundance of cactus. Yep. So a patch kit. Um, first aid, because we're sure that there are going to be cuts and bruises and, uh, and not too many snake bites. Uh, <laughs> but, <Come on. laughs> uh, but we'll be prepared for first, we are prepared for first aid and some level of uh, emergency uh, attention. The, the focus, though, is that you got to carry everything that you need. So it's an assortment of food, uh, the cooking gear, which is really basic because it's going to be jet boil. Um, you know, we might be able to make some powdered, you know, co coffee, coffee in the morning coffee. or something. Yep. The, uh, the tents are lightweight. You know, to say it's a tent is... A kind of a stretch almost you know what I mean it's it, it's a two-person tent we each have a two-person tent um, I don't know I don't think you could even fit two people in mine yeah. they're made to be super lightweight so all of our stuff in my in my feeling is it's very lightweight it's kind of expensive for what you get Mm -hmm. And it's probably also not that rugged. I mean, nothing's too rugged nope. because it would be heavy then. Yep. So the challenge, I think, is that we got to be able to repair stuff. Yep. 
you know, whether the tent gets rips or the, the air mattress or, or the bike. So yeah. that's the other thing we got, we're carrying is, we're, you know. We have replacement parts for all of our high-risk items. We have tools that we feel we will we'll get us through a pretty major repair. Um, so we've tried our best, and we, as we mentioned earlier, we're putting on the best components that we, that we think are, are, are out there to reduce our likelihood of breakdowns. But we know there'll be mechanical breakdowns and, unfortunately, probably tire punctures. Although tires, tires are a big, big concern yeah. because they're four-inch tires. So they take a lot of air. So I, I bought a, a high-volume you know, pump. We're going to have... We've converted them to tubeless, which is key. You, know, yeah, you uh, can't do it without tubeless. A lot of bike tires run tubes, like cars used to, um, uh, but they do offer tubeless options. We have tubeless options where our, our, uh, if it's not a huge puncture, the liquid inside the, t the tire will self-seal. So, If it does not is where you run into big problems with a four-inch tire and that volume... If it goes totally flat, trying to get it re-aired up is extremely difficult without having some kind of you know, compressor. compressor or something. So that could we could run into problems with that. But we have a plug kit as well. So we have plug kits for the tires. Patch kits. Patch kits for the tires. Uh, Michael's high volume pump that he mentioned. Extra uh, sealant. We're carrying sealant. So some of these things are what adds the weight because people are going to ask. I think, well, God, you guys seem like you're overpacked. Why, why are you carrying so much stuff? Yeah. But really, you know, the liquids in particular, like like sealant, yep. like, uh, you know, the fuel for the jet, jet oil, things like that, they're, they're not that, they're just simply not that light. And the biggie that we haven't talked about is um, water. So we'll be carrying in some stretches water to cook, water to, to drink, water if, if, if we have an abundance to clean. Um, we're going to be carrying in some cases... 10 to 13 liters of water each. That is, I mean, I think we estimated at 20, we could be carrying between 25 and 30 pounds of water. water. So, uh, you know, because if you've got a drink, and I found there were days down there in that arid, arid climate where you drink a gallon of water a day, not really even exercising. So you figure if you're out on a bike somewhere between maybe five to 10 hours a day riding, you're, you could be burned through. I could easily see going through two gallons of water per person a day. And if you went through that much water, think about it. If you had to go three days uh, without a resupply on water, how much water you got to carry? So that that's that's. I think water is the biggest challenge. Well, I'm going to rephrase that. Water is the second biggest challenge doing this 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 trip. And what's the first? Well, really the first, first I have a couple ideas. No, really the first challenge is, is our bodies, um, it, for real. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the sheer endurance that you're going to have to uh, overcome to be able to ride what could be, like I said, five to 10 hours a day, targeting between 30 and 50 miles a day on a fat bike through really bad conditions for 45 to 60 days in a row. With 100 pounds, of, you know, weighing over 100 pounds. Yeah. yeah. That's, That's a challenge. wear and tear on your body that is that can't be underestimated. Now, we laugh because there's a few other things from my perspective that, uh, you know, I'm not a big camper. Um, you know, this is, this is going to be, this is by far, I would say, I'm speaking for me, uh, probably Eric's going to be in the same boat, I'm thinking, but this is by far probably the hardest thing that I'm ever chosen to do, um, both mentally and physically, I think. I mean, from a physical perspective, uh, you know, riding 1,700 miles with a 100-pound bike and potentially pushing it 1,000 of those miles <laughs> is, 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 you know, in desert climate and, you know, adverse conditions is going to be super physically taxing. But the mental side of this, you know, I'm not a big camper. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I think, that, I mean, I've stayed in a tent, you know, a dozen times in the last 25 years probably. Like, uh, tent camping isn't my thing. It's the reason I have a, a store in Stevenson and converted an old military truck uh, so I can have a shower. And, you know, so my mindset right now is, okay, I'm going to do this for two months. I really don't have showers. I don't have my bed. I don't have my Tembo Tuscottle that I can cook on. 
They make food all the time. It's like it's my, my loves in life are like food and showers and a nice bed. Yep. You know, really. And maybe a cerveza here or there. And, yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, roll into camp and maybe have a maybe have a cerveza or something. And you know, who, holy hell, is anybody going to want to carry a twelve ounce can of beer? It's way too much. So. I, you know, and people have told me that the mental thing, the mental game on this, uh, to me, I think the mental game is going to be worse than the physical game. Eric and I ride thousands and thousands of miles a year. Yes. Yep. Yep. So the ability to ride 1,700 on normal conditions would not be challenging. Not really. No. But now when you add all of these factors in, I agree. It's going to be, it's going to be difficult. Now, I'm not, I'm not swayed. I'm still super enthusiastic, and I can't wait to get started, and I'm sure we will prevail. But that's not to say that there aren't going to be some days that are really low, really, really low. But I think... I think strongly there are going to be an equal number of days that will be really, really high, and they are going to make it worthwhile. So we have Ollie Optimistic on one side, <laughs> and we have Mr. Realism over here. Um, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> well, it's going to be type two. There will be days that we just hate it. And we wish we never, <laughs> and we wish we never decided to do it, and it's going to be torture. But by the time that day's done and we've had our ramen noodles or tortilla with Nutella on it, we're going to be thinking, man, life is good. And that was a good day. I mean, I certainly hope for that. But I, the mental game, I think, I think let's, let's assume, you know, so we start out of San Diego and you go, you spend the first five days riding uphill, basically. So the first five days are, are gaining elevation. Uh, you know, if you can get through that hump, and then I said to Eric the other day, I said, well, great, five days of climbing uphill, and then you're going to get five days, the following five days going downhill, and I feel like, wow, that's going to be positive, but I'm, I'm, I'm already feeling like it's not going to be as positive as I think it is, five days going downhill, it's not even going to seem like downhill, and at the end of ten days, it's like, that's where your breaking point's going to be at, because you're going to be like, Wow. And, and, and people have said, like, the middle section, when you're not close enough to the end and you're farther away from the beginning where, the, you know, you got adrenaline and excitement is where your mental game is at its lowest point. And, you know, most of the people that I've looked at that have done this route um, on YouTube and, and have written about it and stuff, well, I would tell you there's a very high percentage of them that did not succeed in completing the, the, the route. And some of them have tried it two or three times. Yep, that's true. I remain super optimistic that we will do it and we'll do it well. We may not set the, a land speed record, um, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of times we're going to be hiking a bike and pushing up mountains and cursing and, and, and being uh, pretty down in the dumps. But I think we'll do it. However, a health catastrophe could curtail the trip for one or both of us. And equally, a bike catastrophe that we just can't remedy could possibly put an end to the trip for one or both of us. So, yeah, so uh, some of the backups is, uh, well, let's start out at the top. We're carrying a Garmin inReach, so, uh, which has SOS function on it. So in the event that a catastrophic situation happens, you know, we can, we can hit our, our SOS button. Uh, it has set satellite texting capability, so we can communicate with the outside world. And much of this probably will be off, off cellular um, and, and, and off grid. Um, you know, certainly things that, you know, you, you, gotta, you prepare, but, you know, it has enough crossing points on this route that if we have to we had a, a major mechanical or a major health situation you could bail out on or get to a facility but um let's let's not beat around the bush this is very remote i mean the two states of baja are are definitely the most remote states in all of mexico um there's very little population down there even the even the cities uh there's few and far between the cities are very small you've got la paz and you've got uh, Cabo San Jose at the bottom, and you got Ensenada maybe, but the and, and but they're you know that's it. Most of the time, you're far away from civilization, so there's not a lot of opportunity. Uh, so from a safety conscious, my, my my goal would be to. I told Eric is like 
ride this as slow as humanly possible, meaning like try not to exert yourself ever because it's not going to be worth it to go up a hill, you know, half a mile an hour faster, get a little tired. This is cumulative because I don't see a lot of, I don't see a lot of recovery action going on in this because, you know, speaking for myself, getting in that little tent, <laughs> not having a great meal, not having a great shower, the mindset, both physically and mentally, is there's not a lot of recovery action going on, so it's going to be cumulative. Yeah, and on the support side of the house, we talked long, long and hard about trying to arrange to have a, a sag wagon or a support vehicle, which logistically wasn't going to work out. However, the overland community that you got that you're a big part of is gonna be aware and present and to some extent, and we always have phone a friend options. So because of our contact base, there are people out there that might be within reach that could help us avert something that could be catastrophic. So we have, uh, we have in reach for some true, true serious emergency, but then we have some interim steps that before we get to in reach. Um, and I think the Overland community um, and our, our friends and family are gonna play a big role in that. Because there's a lot of people uh, over the course of the winter. So we're doing this between you know, January 1st and March 1st. So it's, it's really January, February. So that's, there's a lot of overland traffic in Baja during those times. A lot of people, a lot of influx coming down from the United States. So like Eric said, we can do a lot of phone of friends. Hey, hey, you know, we have a real tire problem. We need extra so-and-so. Can we, can we get this brought in from, you know, Phoenix or Tucson mm-hmm. or San yep. Diego or something? So there's, there's definitely those options. And I, I have a fair amount of people that I know that um, live down in the, particularly in the southern state. So uh, I think as we get more towards the ultimate destination, which really finishes at my truck, uh, we'll have more of a support team out there. But we, we had really, like he said, we looked at trying to get, uh, you know, a, a follow wagon or a chase car. But the reality is, is that uh, much of this route is not really accessible by vehicle, e- even four-wheel drive vehicle. And, and where it is accessible, um, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't really eliminate, we, we would still be carrying the vast majority of stuff and the, and the weight. So it, it almost wasn't. It just it didn't it wasn't realistic. We're we're gonna and Mike might have mentioned earlier that we'll be riding around four to twelve miles an hour. Maybe on a if it's a real steep pitch we could get up to fifteen, but for the most part we're gonna be riding pretty slow. So I don't think there's gonna be a lot of scenic vistas that we're gonna miss. In addition to just visually seeing what's out there, there are a lot of missionaries that um, we aren't gonna ride by. There's some hot springs that we're not gonna ride by. There are these palm tree oasises that I've mentioned a few, a few times that are spring-fed rivers that uh, we will definitely stop and see the highlights that Baja has, has to offer, which are many. And, and the route that we've mentioned before has highlighted all of them. So we um, have waypoints that we can see as we go down. A lot of fishing villages, um, a lot of uh, uh, different things. Like, like he said, the missions are, are pretty highlighted on this route. Um, so there's a lot of old architecture to see. Um, a lot of beach riding, honestly. A lot of scenic beach riding, both on the Pacific side and on the Sea of Cortez side. So there's going to be um, there's a lot of stuff to see. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And, and you know, we laugh, but you know, at four or five, six miles an hour, boy, you're not going to miss anything. You're going to see everything because it's going to feel like you're never getting there. Uh, so throughout Baja, there's a lot of um, through their history. Um, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the church went in uh, and tried to spread Christianity throughout uh, the native population down in, in Mexico. So there's a lot of missions that were built, and, and it's interesting to see some of these things because they're out in the middle of, like, nowhere, uh, and you'll be riding along, and all of a sudden there's this beautiful building that looks like it popped up in, you know, in, in the center of Paris or, or in London or somewhere, and it's most of them or many of them are, are abandoned very well preserved because it's desert you know environment so you know there's not very little water down there and um, just beautiful stuff 
So, and there's a lot of them. They're dotted throughout the whole peninsula. So we'll definitely be uh, be checking those out. And old. And old, old. yeah. Old. I, 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 a lot of them were built in the, uh, don't quote me on this, I would say they were all between like probably the 1600s and the 1800s, I, I would mm-hmm. say. So the fat bikes that we've talked about a few times are going to be loaded with bags, and the bags are called panniers. We have front panniers, two two in the front and two in the back. We have a frame bag that sits in the triangle of the bike, and we have a handlebar bag um, in addition to a, a, a top tube bag. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bags on the bikes. Um, we're trying to find the best way to fill those bags, a most efficient way. Um, one bag, one pander will be dedicated to no more riding, time to camp, and that will have sleeping bags in it, um, t- pillows, um, uh, tents, uh, all the things for camp life. A second pander will most likely be time to eat, and that will be cook kits, food, all the things that we need when we're, it's time to eat. The frame bag um, in the middle is going to be filled with tools and electronic equipment, um, depending on whose bike you're talking about. And then that leaves a, a front pannier bag for, for uh, clothing, of which clothing is going to be pretty slim. We aren't bringing much clothes. Uh, we're bringing mountain bike cycling shorts um, with padded shorts um, that can double as casual wear. We're bringing merino wool shirts and merino wool we selected because it um, doesn't smell when you when you haven't bathed recently um, and, it, and it, you don't sweat a lot in it. So it's good for cold and warm weather. Um, and we have a, a, a backup pair of cycling shoes which will be Crocs. Um, but we'll be wearing cycling shoes for the daytime and, and Crocs for the evening. Um, for our hats, we've, we're going to be having protection from sun in, in more of a uh, African safari-style hat in addition to our cycling helmets. Um, and then we obviously have backups for rain, rain gear and cold weather, puffy coats. And I think that pretty much covers our regular clothes. Um, and then... Um, on the front bag, we'll also have emergency supplies as far as first aid kits and patch kits and all of the things that could go wrong with, with bike or body. Um, and I didn't talk about the electronics, but there's an awful lot of electronics just for cycling as well as other things. Yeah, I mean, the, the electronic part of this, uh, obviously we have our bike computers that you know, have our GPS uh, on them. The, the, the route is all loaded into it, so we're following a route. And then we have our cell phones, which nowadays have translated into great cameras. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to be shooting this uh, for a YouTube series, so I am going real minimal with camera gear. It's going to be two GoPros and uh, my uh, DJI uh, Mini 2 drone. Uh, to get some footage from up above, but that's as light as I can get. Um, but as as you guys out there know, there's um, you know there's still batteries involved with that, so we got to be able to recharge batteries. I've got some basic little rollout uh, Go Power solar um, uh, you know charging port kind of you know power packs. I think we're both going to carry an extra one or if not two power packs. Mm-hmm. So you got to be able to you know recharge your cell phone, recharge the bike computer. Our bikes are um, electronic shifting, so we have uh, batteries that run the uh, transmission of the bike. So that has to be charged. I'm just trying to think, is anything else that's got to get charged? And really, the camera gear. I mean, the goal I have is to have enough battery backup probably on board that once we go through a a village or a town somewhere uh, every three to five days, we can probably recharge all of our batteries. Because uh, the solar capability of recharging stuff while we're riding is not going to be great, I don't think. Uh, so that's um, that's going to be a challenge a little bit. Now, don't forget our pump to pump up our mattress and our pillows because I'm not going to be blowing that thing pump. up all that time. <laughs> Probably my electric toothbrush because I really like an electric toothbrush. So, I know, um, But that's kind of like where the, the power stuff comes in. My, my only thing I would add to clothing is it's... To emphasize what Eric said, the, the clothing pack is going to be really minimal. 
you know, uh, you know, a couple shirts, a couple shorts, you know, maybe one pair of like pull on over long pants kind of thing. My concern definitely if it's cold is you're probably going to put every single piece of clothing that you got mm-hmm. on board on at the same time because because really uh, we don't have a lot of cold weather gear because it's just heavy and bulky. All right, so something I'm doing a little bit different with this filming because I film, uh, you know, various YouTube series and things about my truck and motorcycling and everything else. Uh, so my limitation on the Baja Divide trip is going to be the equipment that I use. Uh, the goal uh, is going to be we're going to film on a daily basis, and we are going to track our life on the road uh, um, throughout the entire thing. So both the riding aspects of it, the things that we see, uh, and honestly, the behind the scenes moments where we're you know, pissed off, ugly, and wanna throw our tent down a gorge. Mm-hmm. So all of that, is, I don't wanna say it's a reality show, but it's gonna have that little bit of that theme. Uh, we're gonna uh, get a lot of footage. I have some backups that I'm carrying so I can you know, back up uh, the footage that is shot. Whether or not the series goes live while we're on the route or not is going to be sort of determined in the moment. So um, you can expect I will put together probably a pretty comprehensive uh, series of YouTube videos, um, you know, probably 20 to 40 videos. So it's going to be broken down, maybe cover, you know, two or three days at a time. Uh, How live that is is going to depend on um, our ability to upload uh, when we come through uh, populated areas. So uh, my, my prediction at this point is that we'll be putting up stuff, uh, you know, slightly behind on a, on a delayed basis. But I do think that the, uh, the, the, the beginning content is going to come out while we're still on the trip. So that, that is the goal of doing this. And Eric and I will both be shooting footage using, like I said, a combination of GoPros, uh, iPhones, and the, um, and the drone. Well, this whole event, I think, is going to be life-changing for both of us. We still haven't figured out how that's going to be life-changing, but we know it, but we know it will be. So I'm thinking that a next step, a logical next step, since we'll have driven the Baja Divide in the big rig, we'll have ridden the Baja um, Divide on cycles, is we're probably going to kayak the Sea of Cortez alongside the Baja Peninsula. To me, that's a logical thing to do afterwards. Does my face look like, like I just heard that for the first time? Or not? You guys be the judge. And if for some reason that doesn't pan out, there's always the Continental Divide or the Silk Silk Road or there's another divide that maybe we'll have to figure out our own. We've definitely had it. We had a couple friends do the uh, Silk Road, uh, the, uh, Silk Road ra- uh, gravel uh, course uh, in... Um, I can't remember the country. Kazakhstan. No, it's one of the stones. Kazakhstan. But that looked pretty brutal. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, my feeling is, is that we, you know, we'll see what happens. But my, my gut feeling tells me I want to use the bike not for, for more than just a, a two-month trip now that we've got all this equipment. My, my dual purpose is great, though. Uh, I was actually talking about this with, uh, with you last night, is that... Uh, I have all of the gear by just the definition of buying it uh, and getting the tents and the sleeping pads and the jet boil and all this stuff. I now have a multi-use for it because that's easily going to ro- uh, load up onto the uh, KTM Adventure bike. So I can definitely take the motorcycle out and uh, do some, uh, some multi-day mm-hmm. trips with that. So we'll see what happens. You know who brought that up? Sue and Bill, the people that they want us to meet when we yeah. go out there, their buddy just did it. Did they do it? I didn't even know it was ever done. Yeah. yeah. He said, I'm t- talking to him the other night and they go, he, he kayaked the Sea Cortez. I said, I want to do that. <laughs> that. As soon as you said it, I was like, I'm in on that. Yeah. So the way the current works and the wind works is when you start at the top, it's it, it, it's going to take you most of the way. Right. You know what I mean? And you can go along. There's a ton of islands to check out. There's all sorts of cool stuff. You, know, I, you don't have to. And 
What's nice about that's even more supported than the bike thing because you dock where you want to <laughs> villages and things to dock. So that your chances of actually finding hotels and food and stuff is way higher. Linda will probably do it. Linda will do it now. I don't think you'd have any problem getting a group to, to, to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, we talked to Bill and Sue, and they said, oh, yeah, this guy did it. It's and we're saying, I wanted to find a, um, a, a, a route. I go, but I guess there really isn't one. You just keep the water, keep the land on your right. <laughs> so we, uh, so the, so, so the YouTube series on the Baja Divide that we're going to be producing uh, is actually already started. We made our first video talking about, uh, you know, testing. I guess testing equipment and practicing one day. Um, no, I'm going to cover the all the lead up to it. I'm going to be shooting a bunch of videos on the actual bike and equipment, talking about what gear we've chosen and why um, we're going to talk about uh when we fly into because ultimately we're both going to fly into san diego and start uh, the route starts in san diego so you'll see us uh on the ground there and uh getting last minute supplies in san diego and getting our bikes tuned up at the uh, bike shop and everything so it's going to be cover us uh, all the way basically from today uh, and we're what? We're like two months out. Mm -hmm. three, three, three months. Three months, three months out, out right now. About 90 days out. We're going to start uh, filming now. And uh, it's going to take us all the way through the course till we finish. And we're going to, by the way, have a, uh, I'll call it a finishing party at the Coral Reef uh, in Cabo Pomo at the end. So, uh, and uh, all the uh, overlanders and people that I know down there. Uh, certainly welcome, but uh, we'll, we'll probably end up having a, a pretty good party with some good food and some uh, cervezas and margaritas. So to follow along on our Baja Divide trip, uh, check us out on drivetheglobe.com. And uh, on there I've got created a section that's going to uh, do the backgrounds on Eric and I, the equipment and everything else. Uh, and that's where we'll be posting videos and updates, uh, certainly through any of our social medias uh, at Drive the Globe. You have been listening to Waypoint Overland's Random Waypoints. Like, subscribe, and stay tuned for more.